Take out the handout sheet if you haven't already in your bulletin and we will begin. It is part three in a five part series through the book of Malachi as we do it expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today's lesson is entitled A Community of Injustice. God warns Israel of coming judgment. And I want to begin talking about the issue of justice with a quote by Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? And I want to begin with this. And I thought it was rather appropriate in our postmodern world today. He said this, On the biblical basis, there are absolutes. And therefore, we can say that certain things are right or wrong, including racial discrimination and injustice. In other words, no, not everything is relative. Yeah, when we're talking about opinions, sure, there's going to be a lot that's relative. There's going to be a lot of going, well, I see it says this in the Bible. I see it says this in the Bible. Or maybe I have an opinion about this issue in America, or I have an opinion about that. But when there is a clear statement in Scripture that is black and white, you can say that certain things are good or bad, right or wrong. It's not all up in the air. It's not all relative. God is the standard of justice. And what he says is fair is fair. What he says is unfair is unfair. I don't want us to think that we are on some shifting sand. We are on a solid bedrock of truth when we're talking about God. And that creates a rather serious responsibility for us to correctly handle the word of truth. Amen. Amen. That's why we're here. And that's why we're studying scripture But in order to understand the complaints of Israel and God taking Israel in this passage to task, we need to revisit once again their situation. Because sometimes from an outsider looking in, you can say those people are morons. Why would they ever say that about God? Why would they think that about God? They're just being whiners. Okay, you need to understand two things about Israel. Number one, they're exactly like us. Number two, they were in a really bad situation. And bad situations make people say certain things. So let me revisit for you just a moment the situation that Israel was in. Israel, as you know, had been taken captive and were slaves for a long time underneath the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. Then when they got a chance to come back home, they walked into a trashed nation. They walked into a place where everything was torn down. Their buildings were destroyed. Their temple was no more. So even though they were back home, they must have looked out into this wasteland and said, this is it. Will we ever be able to rebuild? Even then, they still were not free. They were under the Persian Empire who could tax them, who was in charge of them. They were not independent. They were still under someone else's rule, the rule of a pagan empire. That must have been rather frustrating. When they did try to rebuild, when they tried to rebuild their city walls, when they tried to rebuild their temple, all the nations around them threatened them with death. Even inside, they began to have problems with people trying to lead a coup and get rid of leadership. And nobody wanted them to rebuild. And they must have been so frustrated. They were in extreme poverty. Not only the taxation, but they were going through a drought which caused a famine. The crops were failing. They had all sorts of problems that were visiting their nation, even as extreme as a locust plague. And they thought, what is wrong? What is going on in our world? Why does it seem like everything's happening to us? It's just not fair. 
when they tried to do reform, when they tried to say sorry to God, when they tried to repent under the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, nothing seemed to change. Even when they got the temple rebuilt, it paled in comparison to the old one, and they began to weep, saying, are our glory days gone? Will we never be a mighty nation again? They were pretty bummed out. They were pretty sad, and rightfully so. So, they began to doubt that God was good. They began to doubt that God cared. And they took the matter into their own hands. If they were going to establish their nation, they began to divorce their Israeli wives, intermarry into pagan wives, to contract and get more land, to get more wealth. And they tried to do it themselves. Well, we all know what happens. If God doesn't do things fast enough, we take it into our own hands and we make it worse. So even their attempts to do it on their own just made God matter. Just made him more angry with them. And it just began to spiral downward. So they fell into despair. They fell into grumbling. They fell into complaining. And God did not react kindly to that. Why were they in the situation they were in? Because they were being disciplined by God. They had rejected him. They were not worshiping properly. They had turned their back on him. And so they were in a place of correction. Have you ever had a child that you put on timeout and they keep getting up? Okay, same exact idea. No, you're in trouble. Stop playing. Okay, right? You need to sit there and understand your discipline. And the more they get up, you seem to think in your heart going, hey, the more times you get up, the longer you're going to have to sit there, right? That's the scenario of Israel. They wouldn't submit under the leadership of God. They would not stop and back up and soften their hearts. They just kept fighting against him. So he said, I don't know how long we need to be here, but I got all the time in the world. What are you going to do? And they begin to complain and grumble and say that God is bad. God doesn't care. God is impotent in his power. God cannot do something if he wanted to. Therefore, I'll give you this statement that I want you to remember. It's this. Who you believe God to be in your heart and who you display Him to be to the world are two of the most important aspects of your whole existence. Who you believe Him in your heart to be, we call that an issue of Savior and Lord. That's the idea of what does Jesus mean to you. That's important for your own salvation. But who you display Him to be, we call worship. Is that not what worship is? How you show God to be. When you sing songs to God, you're displaying Him as being a great and mighty God through song. When we read His Word, we're saying that He's important enough to show up on a Sunday morning and to learn His Word. When you live a life of holiness, we're displaying that God is worth altering our lives for. Yes? Therefore, that is worship. Those two things, you are here as a created being to worship God. That is intensely important to your existence. Those two things are crucial. Therefore, the fill in the blank in front of you is all that much more serious. Let me give it to you now. But before I do, let me apologize for something. It rhymes. I didn't know it rhymed until I said it. I said it last night and I went, oh no. Okay. I wrote it down, didn't realize it rhymed. Got it. Here we go. When we doubt and complain, we defame God's name. I know. I know. Could not be cheesier. I didn't mean to. It was an accident. When we doubt and complain, we defame 
God's name. Would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, page 676 in the Bibles that were handed to you. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, page 676. If you have never studied Malachi, you're in the majority. Most people don't study Malachi because it's a really confusing book unless you understand the background. Once you understand the background, it becomes a little bit easier. But make no mistake, if you get a little bit lost, I had to go through research to understand it myself. All right. Uh, It's not like I'm brilliant and you're not. It's that I got to rip off other really smart people. Okay, fantastic. Malachi chapter two, verse 17, page 676. I want to read just verse 17 and then we will pray for the word this morning. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, your words even says that we will not understand spiritual truth unless you reveal it to us. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the Scripture to us, that our eyes would be open, that we would see, that we would understand, and then have the power to change. Father, the part that that is responsible on our side, Father, give us the strength. For you have already nailed down everything on your side. May your name be glorified in our presence, and may we leave changed people in Jesus' name. Amen. You have wearied the Lord with your words, Malachi says. Wearied in Hebrew, the the idea and concept is that you have laid a burden on someone else. Does God get tired? No. No, God doesn't get tired. He doesn't have a, a supply of energy that diminishes. God doesn't get tired. But he can get burdened. In other words, when you bum out the heart of God, when you sadden the heart of God, when you complain and you are his kids, that bothers God. God can be bothered. And when he says you have wearied the Lord with your words, God is saying, I could deal with it more, but I'm not going to. As your dad, it needs to stop now. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? Now, I don't know if they really didn't know or if they're just pretending they didn't know. I have no idea. Maybe they were ignorant. Maybe they just didn't know. Because sometimes what I'm about to share is new information. What I'm about to share about complaining and doubt this morning may be brand new to your mind. All right, maybe you don't get how doubt and complaint impacts God. That's fair. Maybe they didn't know. But after today, we have no excuse because we will know. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, he said, by your words, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them. Or you say, where's the God of justice? Okay, there's a couple problems with these phrases. First of all, we always think that what we say doesn't matter. It's just words. Who cares what I say? God cares what you say. Oh, well, I don't say anything. I just think it in my head. God cares what you say in your head. Because that is his kingdom if you're his child. You understand? He cares what you think. He cares what you say. It matters. Not only that, these statements are bad theology. For example, if you've ever said in your heart, God's not fair, you've just said an absurd statement. It actually isn't even an accurate statement to say 
logically. Why? Because God is the standard of justice. There is no standard of justice God has to adhere to. There's no greater law that God has to line up with. When you say God's not fair, you're saying there's something higher than God. Fairness. And that somehow he's not matching it. No, 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 no. By definition, God is fair. What God does is right. What God does not like is wrong. He defines what is fair and just, right? So their theology was bad, but their heart was the main concern. Their heart was saying, God is bad. God's with the bad guys. I don't like God. That's what they were saying. And where is God? God obviously doesn't have power to change the situation or God doesn't care about me. He's a bad God. They were doubting. They were complaining. What's the problem with doubt and complain? First of all, human nature is very quick to blame everybody else. Yeah. Oh, my circumstances are what ruined my life. Oh, these other people ruined my life. Everybody's got someone to blame, something to complain about. I get that. But do you understand what complaining actually means? When we complain about the world around us, we are saying that the powers that be that run the world are not good. And you go, well, who cares? Who cares if I say that I don't like this world? Who cares if I say I don't like the people around me? It's not a big deal. They're not offended. They don't even hear me. I think God cares. And let me give you a reason why. Let's say we're all going to play golf. I don't know how many of you have played golf, but golf is all on grass. Yeah. So you're out there and as you hit the ball, sometimes you leave what's called a divot. Okay. Now a divot is you got a big iron and you're chopping at grass. And when you hit it, it scoops out a piece of the grass and it leaves a little bit of a hole. Now, if someone comes behind you and they hit the ball and their little ball rolls into that divot, it's hard to hit it out smoothly. Does that make sense? Because now you're in a little indention. Well, golfers are notorious complainers. Okay? They whine about everything. Oh, I, I can't believe my ball was right here. Nobody mowed this. Or, oh, it's too dry. Or it's too wet. Or it's too this. Or it's too that. I mean, golfers have every reason in the world for why they're not having a good golf game. And it couldn't possibly be them. Right? So, as you go on and you're putting it, oh my gosh, it hits a little bump in the green and it's gone off its line and, oh, I can't believe what horrible grass, what a stupid golf course, and there's a lot of cussing that goes on. All right? Now you think, who cares if I complain about the grass? It's just grass. The grass doesn't care. Have you ever heard of a groundskeeper? Okay, that's someone's job. When you complain against the grass on a on a green or on a fairway or on a golf course, you're talking about someone's work product. You're not just complaining about nothing. You're complaining about someone. There is someone behind the scenes. Their whole job is to make sure the grass looks good. And they are doing the best of their ability to make it look good. If it does not look good, either they're poor at their job or they have limitations. For example, perhaps the groundskeeper would walk up and say, you've been complaining about the grass all the time. Have you ever heard of a drought? Do you realize that we have restrictions in this area that we're not allowed to water during certain times? Do you get the idea that within my parameters, I'm doing the best with what I have? Do you get that? So you can complain and say that I'm a horrible groundskeeper, but you don't know what you're talking about. You think you're complaining about grass. You're not. I take it personally because I watch over this grass. This is my territory. 
When we complain about the world, we're talking about the sphere of influence of God. God is in control of this world. God is the one running the show. And when we complain about what is occurring, we are saying that he's very poor at his job. Now, God doesn't like that too much. It's stepping over the line. And here's what I mean. If worship is lifting up the name of God, then what's the opposite of worship? Tearing down the name of God, yeah? That's called defamation of character. What do you think you're doing when you complain about your world all the time and you're a believer? What do you think the whole world is looking at you and hearing? They're hearing, wait a second, you're one of his kids and you don't like him? Wait, you're one of his kids and you think that he's impotent as a leader? Why in the world do I want to be involved with this guy? Man, if you're on his team and you don't like him, I certainly don't like him. And I have no interest in your God. It's the opposite of worship. It doesn't lift his name high. It drops his name low. That's why God has a problem with complaining and doubt. Whether we believe it in our hearts or share it with the world, we end up saying God is impotent or bad. But let me give you the balance to that. I'm not saying you can't be disappointed. I'm not saying you can't be angry. I'm not saying you can't be hurt. I'm not saying you can't be frustrated. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Therefore, anger is not what? There you go. Anger is not sin. You have to understand that reactions to your situations are normal. Of course you're going to react. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you're going to scream in pain. It's a natural reaction. But what are you going to do with it from there? That's what I'm concerned with. That's what God is concerned with. Not that you look around and say, I have felt alone. I feel like no one is looking at me and no one cares. I feel like I was not taken care of as a child. That's why I was abused. That's why I was molested. That's why this occurred. That is a natural reaction to be frustrated with your situation, to be angry that no one responded to your need, and to question why. All those things are normal and natural. Very healthy. As a matter of fact, complaining to the Lord in a proper way is called Psalms. Have you ever read that? Okay, listen, Psalms is loaded with complaints to God in a proper fashion. As a matter of fact, we've got a bunch of books like that. Lamentations, Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, a really big one called Job actually chronicles a guy who's having a really bad time and he's trying to sort out why. No, the Bible is very full of people complaining in a proper fashion. Because there's a proper way to channel your emotions and an improper way to react to those emotions. When it comes from the soft heart of a child saying, Lord, I don't understand, that is proper. When it comes from an arrogant position of, and where were you, nice work, improper. You go, well, that's just semantics. No, it's not. It's heart intent. It's what are you thinking in your heart in its deepest place about God. When we complain, we're allowed to say, Lord, I'm lost. Lord, I don't see your hand moving in my life. I'm confused. Where are you? That's good. But when there's a judgment about the nature of God, that's bad. Are we beginning to get the differences here? 
I don't want to belabor the point. God is good all the time. If your formula comes up with something else, your math is wrong. God is good all the time. We must share out of a loving heart for God while knowing the truth. To see fairness and justice from God's perspective, we have to back up. What do I mean? We have to get a broader perspective. We're too close to the situation. If you see injustice through God, back up. When you look at the whole picture, you begin to understand what's going on. I will tell you this. I believe that the reason you believe that God is unjust at times is merely a matter of timing. Let me explain what I mean. We all love the movie where there's a bad guy that's hurting a bunch of people and then he gets really beat up by the good guy. We all like that. Imagine that there's a bad guy in a movie and he's been hurting people and he just struck a child and then out of the camera angle, here comes the good guy who punches him right in the teeth, knocks him out cold. We cheer. Yeah, it's about time you got taken down. Look at that. That's justice, right? But we look at God and we don't see justice. It's merely a timing issue. If it's fast, we see justice. If it's slow, we don't see justice because we as a people don't understand anything that's slow, only fast. Here's what I mean. God actually wrote you a really long book and he tells you the ending. Have you read the ending? In the end, does the bad guy get away? No, but it's slow and we don't like slow. So we say that he's not just. And he says, oh, so you're telling me that you'd rather me instantly punch him in the face as opposed to have him face eternal damnation. That's easier. That's better. Are you kidding me? You're, you're challenging me that I'm unjust when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're telling me that I'm unjust when I will separate the sheep from the goats. You're telling me that when I examine every thought and intention and motivation of man that I'm not just. Are you sure you know what you're talking about? Ah, uh, no, you mean I didn't do it fast enough for you. Gotcha. See, isn't it ironic that we want God to be fast on justice until it comes to our lives? Yeah? Do you want swift retribution? Do you want swift punishment for you? No, God, give me time. I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress. God, you don't want to get back at me right now. Just give me more time. I'll sort it out. Give me more time. Give me more time. We want him to be really slow and patient with us. But when it comes to the rest of the world, nail him. Right? Ah, God doesn't adjust, thank the Lord, with our fads. But he's constant. He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he looks and he says, I'll get the bad guy. Nobody gets away with anything. Relax. Dad's in charge. And yes, I'm slow in your mind, but no, I'm not slow. I have perfect timing and I know exactly how it needs to go down. Amen. Amen. Chapter three, verse one. He said, you want to know about justice? Let me tip my hat to you. Let me give you a snippet of my plan. I'll tell you very clearly why I'm a just and righteous God, and why nobody gets away with anything. He says it this way, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. In other words, before I arrive, like the kingdoms of old, the ancient kings, they had someone that would run ahead of them into the city and prepare their way. 
they'd set up their hotel, they'd figure out and make sure all their restaurants are set up, all that idea, right? Because they're very important, they would have someone else go ahead and prepare the way. The word prepare the way, the phrase in Hebrew, means to remove obstacles. Their job was to go into the city ahead of the king and remove all obstacles so he has a smooth visit. He said, well, I am a king and I'm going to have a messenger go before me. And he's going to prepare the way so that when I arrive, all obstacles will be removed and I will do what I need to do. Who is that messenger? We could sit here and go, well, is it Elijah? Is it Isaiah? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Okay, we can sit there and it would have been an interesting argument if Jesus wouldn't have told us directly who it was. Keep your finger there and turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. It's the next book to the right. Page 689. We're in the last Old Testament book, and we're turning now to the first New Testament book. Page 689. Matthew 11:7. Jesus leaves no guessing. He tells you exactly who the messenger is, and yes, many of you know already. Chapter 11, verse 7, as John's disciples, meaning John the Baptist's disciples, were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go to see? Oh, a man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I'll tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. There you go. Who is it? John the Baptist. Continue with verse 11. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Go back to Malachi. John the Baptist was the messenger who prepared the way for Yahweh. He prepared the way before God to arrive here on earth. He was the one that removed the obstacles. What was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is what? Is at hand. It's near. He was telling everyone, deal with your sins so the Messiah then may save you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That was his purpose. Here's a side note on John the Baptist that I never understood until I read this passage. Do you guys remember what John the Baptist looked like? He's described a little bit in the Bible. You remember? He was a freak. You guys remember that? Okay, John the Baptist was described as a guy that walked around in camel's hair clothing. Nobody else did that. It wasn't like a nice suit. It was crazy looking caveman clothes. Then what was his diet? What did he eat? Locusts and wild honey. Big old crickets and wild honey. When you mix the two, I would imagine they stick in your beard. So you got like cricket legs sticking out of your of your beard and everything. And what was his message? Repent, you're all going to die. So needless to say, he was not Mr. Suave, Mr. Smooth. He walked around with a crazy eye, you know, and he was kind of screaming at everybody, and he was really old school. As a matter of fact, do you realize that when Malachi wrote these words, John the Baptist was not going to come for another 460 years. The messenger is coming in 460 years. But when he shows up, 
He looks a lot like the Old Testament prophets, like no time has passed at all. Isn't that weird? God designs a visualization by going, you remember those Old Testament prophets that were all kind of weird? Look, we got a guy right here who looks just like them. And it shows you the gap of God going, listen, I didn't change my plan. Watch this. It ran right up to prepare the way for me to walk in. We go back to the text. I will prepare. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The Lord will show up. The messenger of the covenant. Those are ways to describe Yahweh, the personal name of God. Yahweh is going to show up to man and he's going to show up at his temple. You mean the first time Jesus came or the second time? Do you understand that it's both? When Jesus came in the flesh, when we had the incarnation of God, when God became flesh and dwelt among us, he did show up to his temple. As a matter of fact, he showed up to the temple in Jerusalem twice. He cleaned house at the beginning of his ministry and he cleaned house at the end of his ministry. And what was his message when he walked into the temple? Straighten up. I'm the Messiah. Hi, how you doing? And they said, no, you're not. He said, all right, I'll come again. When he comes back the next time, the prophets all talked about the second coming of Christ. He will hit his temple with power. He will show up in his temple. You think everyone's going to know it then? Oh, yeah. It's going to change the world and shatter everything everybody believed. And in that day, all knees will bow. Oh, he's coming to his temple. But the question is, when? In their mind, in the Old Testament mindset, you need to understand something. They talk about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ as one event. Why? Because, I want you to picture this. Imagine we're standing at the base of a mountain, or a little bit here, and we see a mountain rise up, and then there's a valley between them, but then another mountain on the other side. When we look across the top of the mountains, we only see one long plateau. We don't see the valley in between. So when they looked at it, the first and second coming all looked like one event. They had no idea that there was going to be two comings. As a matter of fact... They got really confused. They knew that there would be a suffering servant that would show up that would die for their sins. They called him Messiah ben Yosef, meaning just like Joseph suffered, the Old Testament guy, so would this Messiah suffer. Messiah ben Yosef. But then they also believed that he would come in power as a reigning king. They called him Messiah ben David, like King David who ruled. They literally believed there would be two messiahs because they couldn't reconcile the story. Little did they know it was the same person. Little did they know that there would be a coming of the Messiah. He would die for our sins, raise again, and then have a pause before he returned to set up his kingdom. They didn't see that. They just saw across the mountaintops. And so when you read Old Testament prophecy, it sounds like one day. It sounds like one event because they didn't know. As he moves through, he says, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. I was talking with Randy Bohannon, one of the junior high leaders, last night after the service. And he said, you know, I was thinking about what you read in Malachi and I was thinking... Do you remember when John, the apostle, wrote Revelation and he saw Jesus for the first time and he fell down as if dead before him? He fell down on his face because he saw his holiness. 
of all people who would be able to stand, don't you think it would have been John? Think about it. You're exiled on the island of Patmos. You're a martyr in process. You're completely what God has desired, and you're the one whom Jesus loved. If anyone would have been peaceful in the presence of Jesus Christ, it would have been John the disciple. And yet when he saw Jesus, what did he do? He hit the deck. Because you can't stand in that type of holiness. He was immediately encouraged and comforted, which I believe that when Jesus comes again, every one of us will hit the floor. And his children will be immediately comforted and saying, kids, hold on a second. It's me. It's all right. But I can't stand. Yes, you can. I've cleansed you of your sin. You don't have to fear me. Get up. Let's go. Do you see what I'm saying? But as we look at this, who will endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Why can't we stand? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. In other words, when he comes, he's coming to clean house. And that's going to get ugly. The refiner of silver in those ancient days would sit down and watch the silver melt. He would heat it up to such an intense degree that all impurities would boil up to the surface. He'd scoop off the impurities, throw them away. And once he saw that it was purified and he could see his reflection perfectly in the silver, he knew it was done. Yeah? Do I need to make the obvious tie-in? Okay, that when Jesus sees his image in us purely... Then he's done purifying. It will be like the launderer's soap that when you scrub out the garments that are stained with sin, we will be made white as snow, yeah? But there's a lot of scrubbing. And scrubbing isn't comfortable. There's a lot of agitation. He said when he shows up, he will purify with intense heat. And he will begin with the leadership, he will purify the Levites, the priesthood, and refine them like gold and silver. Then Yahweh will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. Then they will bring offerings of Judah and Jerusalem that were acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. When will that occur? When will Israel be a holy nation again? That's a lot of debate. Let me tell you my opinion. There's a weird part of revelation in different portions of scripture to describe the end of the world. And there's a period called the millennial kingdom. Is everyone familiar with the millennial kingdom? It says that after Jesus returns, he's going to set up an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. You guys, when I read about that and I talk about that, I feel like I'm in a cult. It just sounds weird. You're like, what? Why is Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom for a thousand years? He's going to bind Satan for a thousand years. Then at the end of them, he's going to what? Release him for a short time to deceive those he can. Then he's going to throw him into the lake of fire. You're like, okay, God, you're not being efficient. Okay, you should have asked me because I would have just told you when you return, you should have just done it all in one fell swoop. I don't understand what you're doing. That's largely because you're a Gentile. Understand? Here's why. The millennial kingdoms for the Jews. It's called being true to your promises. God promised them a time of blessing here on earth where he would be their literal king and they would be in blessing. You understand? And he doesn't change his word. He said, you Gentile guys, yeah, you got grafted in, so sure, you can be part of the party, but I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to my kids in Israel. I promised them peace on earth. I promised them when I would rule visibly in their kingdom. And I will. 
for a thousand years. I need to make a couple points to them. I need to demonstrate a few things, and then we'll close up shop. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. We move on and finish. Last verse. Verse 5. So I will come near. I'll come near to you for judgment. You see, they wanted him so bad to show up. God, bring the Messiah because then Israel will be the top dog. When you show up, then we'll be the most wealthy nation. We'll be the most powerful nation. We'll be it. Everything we hope for. Now, all of a sudden, everything's going to go great for us and it'll be awesome. And I can't wait for you to show up and bring me presents. And he said, oh, I'll come. But I got judgment first. Then when you're purified, I want to show you the presence that I have for you. I will come to you, near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers. That word in Hebrew is to whisper a spell or practice magic. To adulterers, to perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive foreigners of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. God says, you always say that outside your nation there are pagan people doing horrible things. I tell you that abominations are occurring in my own home. I tell you that abominations are occurring even within Israel. And I will purify that, for it is not acceptable what you are doing. Anybody know why witchcraft is a big deal to God? Anybody ever thought about that? Everyone goes, ooh, because it's scary. No, it's not scary to God. Give me a break. Why is witchcraft bad? Oh, I'm a white witch. I'm a Wiccan. La, la, la. Okay. No, that's not okay. Why is witchcraft bad? Why is it an abomination to God? Because it seeks a power outside of God. That's the answer. It's bypassing him. It's doing something without him. So the answer is, no, we're not doing that. And there's only two sources of power that seem to exist in the world. And they both come from the supernatural realm. This whole business about, I'm getting the power within. I'm only tapping the power within me. That's gas. That's not power. <laughs> you don't have any power. If you're getting power, you're getting it from something supernatural. And if it's not from God, who do you think it's from? All right. In other words, you don't use my enemy to get things done and think I'm okay with that. That's my problem with witchcraft, he says. Don't lie under oath. You promised under my name. Don't violate my covenant. Don't perjure. Don't do adultery. You're violating the covenant you asked me to promise you in marriage. You're violating my name. Every one of these are issues of idolatry, and you're trying to play God. Stop doing that. Well, who cares if I pay my employees less than they're worth? God does. Because it's unfair, and God won't stand by and watch it. Who cares whether we deprive aliens or foreigners of justice? God, you just told me to break up and divorce the wife of the pagan nation. You don't like them. He said, I'm sorry, what did you just say? I don't like them. No, I love them. I don't like you divorcing your Israeli wife to go get a pagan wife so you can get more territory. No, I'm not okay with that. No, I love the foreigner. I just don't want you intermixing with them because you can't handle it. You understand? I have nothing against them. I have everything against you. God brings all these down and he says, do you understand? I'm not angry if people are struggling through these things. I'm angry with the ones that do not fear me. In other words, they do these things arrogantly and they have no care or concern for me. 
that's who I'm angry at. I'm not angry at people struggling with sin. I'm not angry at people that are trying so bad to be righteous. I'm not angry at people who have flaws in their life. That's the whole human race. I'm angry at the cocky ones that think they're God. And I will not stand for it. As we close, understand this. God is unchanging in His justice. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means we are to be like Him. He says, be holy for I am holy. If He is just, if He is righteous, if He is fair, then what should we be but just, righteous, and fair in a consistent manner? We don't manipulate the system for our benefit. We don't use people. We're steady. We're constant. We're holy. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for a reminder that no one gets away with anything, including ourselves. Lord, that You defend us. You protect the widows and the fatherless. You shield those who are hurting. When bad stuff happens in this broken world where we have rebelled against You, You hate it as much as we do. Father, reveal to us every day Your goodness. For Lord, You are great, You are mighty, and You are good all the time. May our circumstances not dictate who You are in our minds, but our faith and trust in Your nature. In Jesus' name, Amen.